Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. the trailer for Star Trek Generations, if I cared about this movie, mm. uh, I would probably not like this trailer. I will say. Please do. Thinking back to the time before this movie came out in 94, seeing Picard on screen with 
Captain Kirk uh, was exciting. And I know that that was something that, that I was excited about at the time. In retrospect, when you watch it, you realize that they, they show you quite a bit of stuff that happens. I will say the trailer makes the movie look a lot better than the movie itself is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot more action, adventure, Substance. excitement, more, more captain stuff. Yeah. Not as, yeah. Mu- not as much brooding. Oh, there's a lot of brooding. <laughs> Everybody's brooding. Oh, yes, there are. The yes, story are. itself has precious little substance to it, and we'll talk about that. But because of that, I think that, you know, the trailer cutters were were definitely, uh, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Because it, they're, they're having to manufacture uh, excitement and exhilaration out of where there, there isn't. And on that, in that regard... I think they did a fine job. Um, I, I think they probably revealed too much. I think that's also probably the style of the time. And I'm with you. I, I think when I first saw this trailer, I was probably pretty excited to see all all of the great captains on screen. That That's great. And I was excited because the show, the TNG, had been on the air, and I knew these characters so well. I was excited to just see them on the big screen. That was a great thing. This was right on the heels of their full uh, seven seasons. So it's anyone who is a fan of the show. Um, and I know this, this show is really where my Star Trek interest picked up. Um, you know, it just, it, you know, it got me really excited. It's like, this is the chance to now take that step and see them in the next, the next phase of their journeys. And I was quite excited. It reminds me watching the trailer again, that I was not thinking very critically about the story itself uh, when watching the trailer. And I just sort of let it wash over me. It was good. It met my needs. And I, and I probably moved right on and seeing the movie and then going back and watching the trailer, especially in the context of all the movies we've been talking about back to back. I, I realize just how many it feels like just a just weird shortcuts, a hodgepodge of TNG stuff just sort of jammed on screen. And um, and and it's, it's not really representative of the Trek that I wanted to ultimately see uh, on screen. But I, I think to your point, I was probably right there with you, excited to see all the captains on screen and and ready to trek out. But you have to be a little disappointed, Pete, that the trailer does not feature data singing about finding life forms. <laughs> Oh, little life forms, oh, little life forms, where are you? In a distant corner of our galaxy, a secret observatory is attacked. A brilliant scientist is found, and a mysterious ribbon of energy where past and future collide is unleashed. It's a doorway that we call the Nexus. Every ship which has approached the ribbon has either been destroyed or severely damaged. Obviously, they were looking for something. There's still no indication of why they attacked the station. I must return to the observatory immediately. There's nothing I can do. Timing is very important in my experiment. I have an appointment with eternity, and I don't want to be late. Someone doesn't care about weapons or power. He just cares about getting back to the Nexus. The star is going to collapse in a matter of minutes. That'll destroy everything in this system. Population? 230 million, sir. Why would he destroy a star? I have to stop him. But I can't do this alone. I need help. I know someone who can. You say history considers me dead. Who am I to argue with history? You're a Starfleet officer. You have a duty. I don't need to be lectured by you. I was out saving the galaxy when your grandfather was in diapers. 
Now, the torch of adventure is about to be passed. Eliminate them. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that right there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, David Carson ushers a new Trek cast to the big screen with his 1994 film, Star Trek Generations. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you are a regular listener of the show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members-only weekend show, and get better chances of being a part of our Listener's Choice episodes. Just head over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. All right, Andy. I, I, I just... I don't like this movie, and it hurts my feelings. I take it deeply personally on the heels of such a great experience with Star Trek VI. I love the Star Trek VI so much. So here's a question for you, and and I really had to think about this question quite a bit after finishing this. Is this film any any different in quality from Star Trek V: The Final Frontier? And if so, what are the what's what makes it a different experience? Well, that's a great question, and I think I have a position on this. I, I feel like Star Trek V is a much more approachable film just visually. It attempts to do more things more interestingly. I think uh, Shatner ha- is a is a stronger filmmaker than David Carson. Well, I definitely agree with you there. <laughs> David Carson uh, left little to be desired with his uh, directing abilities. I, I mean, it's I shouldn't I shouldn't just you know out and out poo poo the man as no. a director, but I did find watching this that. And looking at his uh, filmography in uh, the TV series, as far as Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and everything, he he is kind of, for me, he feels like a TV director. I, I feel like he's had a lot of exposure directing TV series, and watching what he did here feels like he did not have a good understanding of how to expand it into something that felt more cinematic. It felt very staid. Even though he had a fantastic cinematographer on board, everything felt... you know, much more controlled than I think it needed. Yeah, I, I think it was it was not bold, right? It didn't take any risks. It, it even with the resources that it had, and uh, the 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 sets looked largely good. the uh, The ships looked great. Uh, I, I really felt, and and this is the the this particular Enterprise is not my favorite Enterprise. I think it looks way too squishy. Um, so you know but it, <laughs> even so i think they they the the uh, the effects the model effects were terrific it is a it it is it looks beautiful and substantive and even if i don't like the shape of it i certainly like how they used it on on screen so there there are some things in this film that need to be sort of celebrated like it 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 looks generally pretty good uh it it just it just doesn't feel like it has substance. But the problem for me, it's it's a script problem. There, this film has a lot of issues. Um, I, I feel like if you count the number of issues this film has, um, balanced with the number of moments that I really liked, I think it's kind of on par with Star Trek V. It actually is, as far as like the number of good moments versus the n- number of bad moments. 
The difference for me is that this one feels very, um, and I guess it goes back to kind of what we were just saying about the director. It feels, it feels very narrow. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of a scope. It feels, it feels like it's riding along that average, the line of average, pretty well. And yes, there are some moments that kind of tip into cool moments. There are some moments that tip into not so cool moments. But on the whole, it never spiked to say, "Wow, that was a really great moment," or "Wow, that was a really." Awful moment. Well, I, I maybe, maybe want to disagree with myself on that. Uh, point. Uh, yeah, you should disagree with yourself. Yeah, but uh, but it never had any moments that is like, wow, that was a really great Star Trek moment. And Star Trek Five does have some of those moments. I think that the story itself has some interesting points that hit really nicely. Well, and I want you to talk a little bit about uh, you know Ron Moore and um, you know and the and efforts Braga. that they went and, and Brandon Braga and the efforts that they went through to to try to get what they had in their head on screen. Because because I, I think they had a challenge <laughs> that that they were uh, that that ultimately was insurmountable. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, a lot of a lot of the issues um, I also say comes from the story and these two writers um, and and Rick Berman who was on board as uh, kind of helping uh, craft the story with these guys. They had an interesting concept, I think, in the Nexus. But unfortunately, and even listening to the two writers talk about it, it, they never were really able to get it to mesh into kind of what they were trying to do. And I think that uh, in the end, I think that they, I think that the Nexus ended up winning. I think it took down the writers and it didn't, uh, they weren't able to kind of get a hold of it and, and tame it into something that they needed it to be in the context of the film. To that end, hearing them talk about um, their idea when they first started thinking about the story, and uh, I think it was Brandon talks about how he always sees the poster first, and he saw this poster of the two enterprises um, battling each other. It's like, that's an amazing idea. How can we make that work? And they were never able to make that work. Now, I have to argue and say there there's bound to be a way to make that work and they could have very yeah. well done it and made such a great film out of it unfortunately they left they they got stuck with this 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 really frustrating idea of the nexus that i just i i fight with every time i watch i guarantee this. you that that movie with the two enterprises fighting each other has no space ribbon in it <laughs> i guarantee you there is no space ribbon i think what they ended up with is a story that has no stakes i mean this is the raiders of the lost ark like if indy had not interjected himself we'd be fine he'd be in the nexus nobody would have been like if kirk had not done anything the nexus would have taken uh soren and he'd be in his happy place and the the nexus itself would keep flowing through space just as it is at the end of this movie there is it nothing is resolved nothing is resolved and they don't seem to care that nothing is resolved they're just got what well, are they now tracking the neck are they gonna go follow it to the next planet the next lunatic nothing is resolved it's just it, it is a, a ridiculous plot with manufactured stakes that I just don't think live up to the raw material that they're working with here. And it was really frustrating. Uh, and, and Malcolm McDowell, his, his needs, right? This is the putty that they're working with here. His character's needs are so deeply personal and irrelevant to the mission of, uh, of the Federation. <laughs> I mean, like they are, I, I just, I, they, they could have just let him go. To that point, though, I do say I, I like the idea that this was a guy who was willing to destroy 
star systems and I mean take out you know millions of lives just to get back to this thing. Um, did they did they hit that point home well enough? Not at all. And it's it was just a very it just kind of the story the 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 antagonist his his logic everything just seemed kind of you know kind of lame and it was it was really I don't know it was just very frustrating and I guess I was a little confused also at the beginning of it were was he one of the people on those ships yes. along with Whoopi Goldberg yes so so okay so then we go into this whole thing. He was rescued. He was pulled out of the Nexus. He was pulled out of the Nexus. But we get this, um, this, you know, uh, as as Guinan brings up later. It's or no, I think actually it's uh, in our deep scene dive. We have um, we have uh, data saying no ship has ever made it into the Nexus and that didn't blow up basically. Um, but they were in the Nexus. It, it, does that mean that they're they're presence within the nexus would have been destroyed the minute that the ship blew up okay. I, I guess i didn't understand it's like wait a minute what i love uh, i love that you bring this up and this is this is yet another reason why i find this incredibly thin the the maniacal genius of the of the ribbon of the nexus if the nexus comes yeah. to you you get everlasting peace in your happy place if you come to the right. nexus you turn to embers <laughs> is that how it That's works? That's how it works. So when the Nexus whipped up and hit the Enterprise B and destroyed the that piece of it uh, and that front front deflector array and Kirk was taken, that was the Nexus reaching up to him. So he got to go to his happy place. Had they just flown the Enterprise into the Nexus, nobody would have been in their happy place. That's that's what I think their internal logic is. That is absurd. <laughs> so and that's why when you see those ships I know when you see those ships, uh, they're facing away from the Nexus, right? They're they're facing away, like they're 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 yeah. they're not flying uh. into it. <laughs> I can't even. How can <laughs> it's so? Why are we having this conversation? Oh, no, go on. This is great. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's so stupid. We jumping forward. We're going to jump forward because Guinan obviously was rescued. She had been in her happy place. Somehow she came out and is now you know seventy three years later and is now on the 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 you know uh, Enterprise D and she is not a lunatic. Maybe that's because. She's still also in the Nexus. Yeah, right. Why why do they want us to wrap our heads around such a ridiculous leap that we all have to buy into this? It is I can't do it. I can't do it. He needs why, Andy, stupid. I and then uh, and then when they get out of the Nexus unexplainably and and they position themselves at a kind of a, the the perfectly timed uh yeah. period to make the plot work uh, or accelerate in a theoretically quote-unquote exciting the guy in echo is all uh, powerful she can just send you where you need to go the, okay so then now they're back on on the planet fighting against uh soren but where is the other picard because wouldn't there be picard one there uh-huh. also uh-huh. you would wonder was he crushed under the rocks that cr- crashed down upon him when soren shot down and all the smoke the dust came up and we didn't see him is that where he went what is going like what stupid yeah i now here's the thing i think uh braga and berman they they get a lot of uh 
man, they, they get a lot of blame uh, for doing things with Trek, for taking over sort of leadership of Trek uh, and and doing things with it that are just, you know, that, that aren't Trek. And I disagree with that. I really think under there, they, they shepherded in uh, a lot of great ideas in the Star Trek uh, canon. As r- as writers, though, yes. right? Not writers and showrunners, uh, showrunners for Voyager, oh. and I mean, they—they're just—they've—they they, have been—they've been around a lot of series, right? And so, I—I I think they—they they get a lot of flack for it, but and I think a lot of that is heaped on them uh, because of this film. It is—it's—it's it's silly, and I—I I certainly recognize. I—I <laughs> I don't have. Uh, a a multi million dollar feature credit uh, to my name, so it's really hard for me to like just continue to lob crap at it. But it, it's it's a silly. It was not a good audience experience for me, and it made me angry. <laughs> I did not get this angry at Star Trek Five. Right, I, I didn't get this angry. I was puzzled. There were some things that were kind of dumb and didn't hold up very well. Um, it, it ultimately, for both of us, came out on this viewing as a three star movie. Right? Yeah. This film um, is is not that for me, and on watching it again, it just it becomes more ridiculous. Asked us to asked us to do so much more, and I think the problem is I do I take this personally because I actually really like these characters, I really do, and I think they do things in here that are just ill advised that lampoon the character. I don't come to Star Trek. Uh, to a Star Trek major motion picture, the first time I get to see the the next gen cast on the big screen, I don't do that to come see them. Uh, you know, doing a promotion ceremony uh, on a uh, on a ship at sea in the holiday. I don't come to see them do that, and it is it's poorly written. It it they put words in these characters' mouths that are, are that don't befit the character, uh, and it's just silly. And to open the first next generation uh, experience with this cast in such a, a ridiculous vaudeville fashion, I think, is unforgivable. I, th- I think they just missed a huge opportunity. And in fact, I think if this movie had been better, we would probably have more than four next generation cast films. Like this, this movie, uh, it was not that great. And it, it didn't set the bar high enough. Well, so here's a question for you. Um, uh, Star Trek, the next generation, seemed to have a lighter tone often than the original series. Um, not all the time. I mean, certainly they had some, some, uh, some uh, episodes that uh, were, you know, thrills and, and exciting and everything. But on the whole, my, my memory of it, and I haven't gone back to rewatch it like you have, but my memory of it was that it was always a little bit lighter in tone. And I don't know if that's because Roddenberry kind of came back to the fold and really wanted to impart his vision again into the into the series. But I think I correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't a lot of the elements that they're pulling into this film like specific things that they're pulling from the show like spot the cat and the emotion chip and uh just kind of the you know just things like that that just for me become really kind of sticking points of bad comedy. And and uh, just uh, treacly 
emotion that just don't work at all. But I mean, they're kind of there, aren't they? Yeah, you know, I, uh, two points to that. First, you got to remember, we had 178 episodes of the TV show to uh, explore these concepts, both funny and dramatic and heartbreaking and interesting and compelling and thrilling. Like, we just had a lot more real estate to play with over time to do these kinds of things. And to when I hear you say that, I think that the problem is they felt like they needed to jam all of the most popular laugh lines and elements that that are you know the the key elements for our, each of our major characters had to be just shoehorned into this movie paying too much attention and too much sort of i don't know too much attention to the tradition of the TV show and not letting the movie be the movie well i think that's absolutely um a a problem that i see is that they felt uh, they had to uh you know placate the fans they had to do fan service mm-hmm. and go hey you love tng here's more tng but bigger and better and funnier yeah. um, I, that that really does feel like what they were trying to do here instead of saying hey we now have the opportunity to tell a story like a good story uh for tng but just on a bigger canvas like what if they had uh, well and we'll talk about that next week i was gonna say what if, what if they did a really interesting borg uh story um, I'll save that point for for next mm-hmm. week. But what if they had taken a a story that was um, even just hinted at, or or characters that they had only just lightly explored? Or what if they just dumped all of that and didn't tie anything into it? They just took these characters on a really interesting voyage. I think that would have been a story that would have made people happy. Again, even going back to the idea of captain versus captain battling the two ships. I mean, find a way to tell that. In a in a story that um, that can work and be really interesting, and and the next generation, that's like well trod territory for the next generation, and and specifically to next week, which we'll talk about, right? Tying to the show, paying service to the show, and doing it in a way that really uh, that allows you to tell tell the next chapter of that story on a much bigger and glorious canvas and take some new risks. This movie takes no risks, takes all of the smallest humor moments from the show and uh, shoehorns it into a, a, a snow globe uh, with a, a nice, literally fancy ribbon tied around it. Can you see what I did there? Yeah, it's, well, it was very beautiful. Uh, r- rapid fire uh, here, Andy. Reusing Star Trek VI's explosion. What's funny about that is listening to the director talk about it and and talking about it as if he actually had shot that. And I don't know if David Carson is just forgetful or or clueless or or pretending or I I don't know. But listening to him talk about it, he's just like, yeah, oh no, we shot that. It was a great model. It was like six feet, and we all went down and we watched it blow up. And I was like, no, no, I want it to be like bang, bang, bang. <laughs> like as if he was directing it. I'm like, wait a. This is what what is he talking about? And I really and and, and even the person that he's talking with is is talking about, oh yeah, it was, it was an explosion so great they used it in multiple films. And I'm like, yeah, this is the film they reused it in, guys. You were not I just first. watched Star Trek Six. That to me, just again, going back to David Carson as the director, I mean I don't wanna I don't wanna dismiss him too much, but I just hearing that I'm like maybe he just wasn't paying attention all that much. I I, I couldn't figure it out. Yeah, no, that w- that was not great. Uh, how about uh, uh, this is a ship that needs seatbelts? I, I I almost feel like at this point this is like a a parody of Star Trek when things happen and nobody's wearing seatbelts. I I really just 
it perplexes me and it will continue to perplex me as this series goes it, on. it will and luckily however at some point it does get resolved which i think is even funnier i can't wait for that. absolutely and and can i just say and i know this is not i i don't want to get into uh I, I don't want to get into a thing like uh, but seriously they put troy in the pilot seat of the saucer section Mm-hmm. Now I know that this is this is a this is a thing that upsets a lot of people. It does not upset me because of the old joke, oh my gosh, women can't drive. That is not why it upsets me and that is low-hanging fruit. That's always where the joke goes. That's not that's not it. When you hear Marina Sirtis talk about this, she talks about how glorious it is that finally she gets to pilot the starship, right? Finally she gets to do it because she says, you know, there are always here's another red shirt who is apparent who who comes in to fly the I'm sitting right here. And then they put another red shirt. And here's another. Here's another engineer who comes in and fly the ship. Andy, she's a psychologist. <laughs> I know. That's the problem. Uh, that is the problem. She's a therapist. She is she's a psychic. Like she is not a pilot of the that makes me so mad. Uh and and it's even though I I don't like the enterprise. What there's another one. They separate the saucer section. That, that was only the whole Klingon thing. I am sure it's only an excuse to do this great big saucer section separation that we didn't need. Right. They did. They give us they give us just so few such, such short time with the ship on screen before they blow it up in their first movie. They blow it up. It was unearned, unearned, Andy. I am fired up. I hear you. And I, I know the saucer section was an or saucer uh, separation was another element from the show yep. that they're like, oh, well, let's do that again. Uh, finding an opportunity to bring it back. So, again, it's time and time again. And, you know, for for a, a show that that always has done, uh, I, I won't say always done like right by science, but because uh, obviously it is science fiction and they do have to fictionalize quite a bit. But, you know, for the most part, they're trying to make things seem, you know, somewhat realistic. When Soren launches that um, that rocket to blow up the sun, <laughs> that thing must fly faster than the time travel warp speed because that thing hits the sun like in seconds. As soon as it goes up, pow! It's it's it hits the sun. It's like how what how fast is this thing going? Yeah, uh, you know it takes what it takes us from Earth. To, I, I know we're not flying warp yet. But to get to Mars, it's going to be what, like, you know, I can't remember how many months. This is good. No, please tell me, tell me more time. about science. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, right. Yeah. But look, uh, well, your, your point is exactly right here, because not only does it take just seconds for the rocket to get to the sun, but then it gets dark, like instantly. Right? Yeah. If, if they were that close, if that planet were that close to the sun... Wouldn't there be some delay in the 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 travel of you know light 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 speed they call it I think I'm no Neil deGrasse Tyson but I'm just saying I would not expect it to be like somebody flipped a switch and right. if they did if it was that close then they would be burned up right they would not be surviving on that planet and if they blow up the sun. Because his whole thing is, it's to to change the gravitational pull of the Nexus. It's like, <laughs> it doesn't change their gravitational pull. They're fine. It doesn't throw them into space or anything. And what? all of this happens while the Nexus is in view. They can see it. <laughs> they can see it, Andy. Oh, I am not a scientist, but I know space doesn't work that way. <laughs> Ugh. 
You know, it's funny. It, with all of this, I, I wrote down a note. Why is Whoopi Goldberg not credited? And I think we just <laughs> answered the question. She probably, you know what? Maybe I don't need my name yeah. on this one. Maybe they won't recognize me. <laughs> uh, it, okay, so oh. uh, you have uh, did uh, I notice in the in our notes you're highlighting some things. You want to specifically talk about them? I may have answers. They might not be good. Well, I want answers because because I, I know that you're more the Trek nerd than I am. And these are questions that genuinely perplex me with the series. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out the answer because, okay, so several times, I think of this show and even the last show, I think both of the captains say, you know, get us there, maximum warp, which sounds really fast. Like, put the pedal to the metal is basically what they are saying. Yet in Star Trek Four, they're going, you'd think that they'd have to be, you know, going under maximum warp because they're going warp, you know, five, warp, six, warp, seven, warp, eight, point one, point two. Like they're counting up to to warp and, and the ship is vibrating and it's like things are going to fall apart just to do this light, uh, th- this time travel thing. Yes. What's the difference between those warps, <laughs> which seem less than maximum, and maximum warp? Well, the way I understand it, if you if you look at uh, at the the warp, <laughs> actually on the I'm on the the warp warp factor uh, a, a table. Uh, okay, uh, there is a there's a warp factor table which will tell you and and the ships and their capabilities of of warp factor and in fact there's a, a wonderful uh, YouTube video that actually does the real time like if it it puts a little table with all the little ships and their warp capabilities and like has them do a race to venus so you can see how fast it would take the voyager to get to venus and and how long it would take the the enterprise nx01 to get to venus which is from star trek enterprise which is a warp one capable ship maximum warp when they say maximum warp that means that you are going the Essentially, the the manufacturer's recommended maximum warp capability for the engine. That is not the same thing as the theoretical maximum uh, uh, that the ship is ah. capable of, right? So even though, you know, they may say that your uh, BMW is capable of 160 miles an hour. I don't know. It's, it's probably one that can that, that goes that fast. Uh, <laughs> maybe in a stiff tailwind down a steep hill, the, it can go faster than that. And pieces might start falling off of it. That's, that's what you're experiencing there. Uh, and so the, the Enterprise D... I think is nine point nine seven five or something. Or no, no, no. It's it's actually less than that. It's it's like nine point seven or something. And the, and the the Voyager is actually that was that whole class of ship is smaller with bigger engines. It's it's capable of you know nine point nine seven five, and and that's that's one of the fastest ships. And then they get into like the Enterprise J is this re- ridiculous theoretical maximum that we never actually, um, they never actually talk about. So. Um, like you hit it, and then and then all of a sudden on the other end you pop out and everybody's baby yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> yes, you have just <laughs> answered your own question. Star Trek nerd question <laughs> number two. I'm not sure if I did service to that question at all. Does that make any sense? No, did I, do okay? I, I think yeah, I think it okay. helps. I think it does. Help. All right. Okay, so uh, nerd question number two. So okay, uh, these ships are huge. They clearly hold a lot of people. Are there civilians on the ship or is everyone kind of an employee in one faction or another? I know in this one we have a whole bunch of kids yeah. that that pop up. And as I recall in the Next Generation show, there were schools and things. Um, so obviously there are, 
But then I, I it perplexes me because I'm like, okay, but aren't they like these guys are going into battle? There's Klingons attacking them. Is that just the the nature of living on a ship in space, or or is everybody an employee? Uh, so this is actually a great question, and it's it's different. Uh, it is one of the major changes from the original series to the next generation that uh, this the Enterprise D is huge, right? It's a massive ship and uh, has this crew complement of over a thousand um, a thousand crew members, and that includes civilian residents and their families, right? Because of the way the Federation works, you know, uh, everybody is an employee of the. Federation. Federation, and because presumably the Enterprise is a research vessel, it's also the the flagship of the Federation, and so um, they uh, they actually host families on this ship, and they it, it's like uh, overseas military duty, right? Where you go to work uh, for the Department of Defense uh, as a teacher, and you're placed in a base in Germany, and your kids go with you, and your spouse goes with you, and they may work uh, for the civilian complement of the base, but, or they may not. Well, that's the model that they were going for when they, they introduced the next generation, that for these big ships, they're going to need people to support the family element when somebody is when when somebody is a, a crew member, uh, they bring their spouses, they bring their kids, and they have to take care of them. Huh. Okay. So in the original ones, like when they're when they go off to fight Khan, it's just what like you know fifty crew members, and that's it on the ship. So the Enterprise D that we just talked about has a crew complement of one thousand fourteen. Uh, the Enterprise A. Uh, which was so Enterprise D was galaxy class, much much larger ship. The the Constitution class is the seventeen oh one, which has a crew complement of just over four hundred, uh, and so it's a significantly smaller ship. It is puzzling though that uh, in, even in a crew complement of four hundred, that the captain always has to go. Yeah, there are only seven people who really get involved in any sort of action. What are the other three hundred and ninety three people do? I I don't know, but uh, that's not a question that we're supposed to ask. So, uh, how many people are living and working on on Enterprise D? Uh, One thousand fourteen. Because then, then I was like, well, how does that equate to the Death Star? <laughs> like all these people getting killed in these battles in space. It's like, geez. Yeah. Uh, so, well, and the Death so Star funny. is uh, significantly it's in the hundreds l- of larger. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. On the that's uh, a it's a moon. It's a small. Well, moon. it's a, it's no moon, Andy. <laughs> It's a space station. Uh, it has a crew of 265,675 plus 52,000 gunners, 607,000 troops, 30,000 stormtroopers, 42,000 ship support staff, and 180,000 pilots and support crew. That's a lot and, of people. And that was from the New Hope era Death Star. That That's not... Uh, the, the Jedi Death Star was much, much larger, and Starkiller is, is much, much larger, obviously, than that. What do you think? What do you think about that? Just whipping out those numbers. I, I love it. It's it's frightening these statistics <laughs> that you have just sitting around. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, uh, what's that? You got anything else? What's it? Give me another nerd question. I think that's. The, I don't have any other nerd questions. Mm. Um, well, here's here's one for you. What is Data Cry? <laughs> Does he have special it's like glands, a saline um, planted in his eyes <laughs> that uh, that allow him if he if if he gets emotions, this will allow tears to come out of his eyes. Well, yeah. I mean, yes. I, I don't know what the actual substance is, um, but I know that, that <laughs> you know, I mean, this is such a... And this is part of the problem, I think, with this this whole narrative. And then I'm going to shut up so we can talk about, you know, 
deep scene dive. This whole narrative uh, of data and the emotion chip is predicated on a storyline that is really rich and allows Brent Spiner to do some really fun stuff on screen, right? I mean, the, there, there are like six or eight episodes that this pulls from directly uh, and a whole lot more indirectly that all lead to this emotion chip. And they managed to try to to jam all of the sentiment in the emotion chip in a, you know a three minute sequence with him and Jordy. And it's really frustrating because why it's fusing to his neural net, why it's not working, why is he doing this kind of weird laughy thing all the time? And then what is he crying? Why does his makeup not run? Right? All of these are huge questions. Uh, and we don't get a chance to really explore them because it requires a knowledge of the show that um, I, I think is unfair to expect for a mass market cinematic audience. Well, and I think that speaks a lot to uh, the balance that the uh, the people behind these films needed to strike between making a film that was something that that fans only would really understand and click with and something that the general movie going audience could actually go and enjoy i don't think my impression is that they weren't really making something that an uh, just a generic movie going audience could actually go sit and enjoy i think they made a film that's like oh this is going to be for fans something that the fans will really get into and uh, to that end, I think they did themselves a huge disservice because it's it's not a film that you know you could just take a you know a friend to who knows nothing about the Star Trek universe because they're going to be like why what's going on who is this guy I, and I think that's a problem I feel that the um, the next generation films are going to run into uh, time after time that we'll be chatting about. I, I look forward to that. And I think you you asked that uh, a central question here. Are there any next generation movie fans? And I assume that, uh, you know, the the rest of that sentence is compared to the, regu- the, the original series Trek fans, right? Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, there are Star Trek fans. And I think that there are fans who really love the Star Trek shows, the Star Trek films. But in context of all that, are there ones who are like, oh, this, the next generation movies are just, uh, they're, they're the best, they're so funny, I just love everything that's going on in there, and, and might appreciate them more than the, the original films? I've never met somebody, but I'm just wondering. Well, we, we don't there. hang out with younger people, right? I imagine those people who only knew the next generation were very excited and puzzled about who the hell Captain Kirk is when they saw this movie for the first time. Right. I mean, that, that they just don't have that same shared experience. If you were born in a certain time, uh, this is your movie. Just like it, just like, uh, you know, there are people whose entire prequels, whose yeah. entire Star Trek experience is Star Trek Voyager. And Janeway is the captain that uh, the oh, captain, my captain of the Star Trek series. And I think that is a, a really legitimate position. It's a good show. But there are people who say that over the original series because they just haven't seen it. Uh, so I, it's, I, I find that really interesting. I know my kids are that way. They're, they're Voyager kids all the way. That's interesting. No. Over the others. Yeah. 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 Deep scene dive, Andy, uh, set it up. Yeah. We are talking about the scene that is, uh, Data and Picard in the stellar cartography, uh, room. It's a, it's a beautiful scene. They have learned a little bit more about this, uh, this nexus and, and Picard has asked Data to meet him, despite the fact that he's, you know, having emotions. So they go and meet in stellar cartography to talk about this nexus, what it is, where where it is, and uh, what possibly Soren could be up to. According to our information, 
The ribbon is a conflux of temporal energy which travels through this galaxy every 39.1 years. It will pass through this sector in approximately 42 hours. Yes. Guinan was right. She said that Sodom was trying to get back to the ribbon. Now, if that's true, there has to be some connection with the Amagosa star. Data, give me a list of anything that was affected by the star's destruction, no matter how insignificant. The stellar cartography, first of all, I, I think the part of the reason I like this, this scene is uh, because I really like the set. This is one of the major sets that we're introduced to on the film that is a massive change from what we had on the show. Stellar cartography in the show is a it's a room with kind of a globe. Got <laughs> an old it's an a series right. of atlases, <laughs> and it's all on paper. It's very strange. Uh, it's more like Hogwarts. And uh, here we have this beautiful giant like in the round sequence. It's actually it looks much more like Cerebro from the X Men, which is fantastic because here we have you know. Uh, Professor X walking out on this giant tongue platform in in the middle of this giant surround you know, space map. Uh, it just looks really cool. So, you know, that's a great setup for me. I mean, it's substantively, it just looks great. It's a treat to watch. I think that they uh, misnamed it when they called it stellar cartography. They should have called it the... Uh... <laughs> What did you say? It's the, the surround map room or whatever you said. That was... <laughs> I want that sign on the door. <laughs> Surrando map, map room. And and in the in the actual sort of Elkar's typography would be great. The Surrando map room. <laughs> that would be the Jason, best. meet me in the Surrando no, map room. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really like, for me it's kind of the high point of the whole film. I mean, just the most amazing set, just the beautiful beautiful effects work that they've done kind of creating this 3D um, map of the galaxy, which if you think about it, it really is like this is almost how you would have to do it. You'd have to make this big thing that does kind of envelop them because so much of it is on so many different levels. Um, I, I think they do just a beautiful job of of creating the the vision of this room. And I just remember watching in the theater and this it, it's the thing that has always stood out for me because of just how powerful it is. And just when when things shift and it all kind of feels like it's flying past you, uh, this is something that I think would be magical in uh, in 3D or VR. It really is just uh, a beautiful. Oh, totally. Set. And you know, I have to say, what, uh, we know kind of what's and, and you and I we watch a lot of movies, right? We kind of know what's what's possible in in terms of you know CG effects. And so, even though it looks great, I still sort of marvel at how beautiful it is when that red line sort of moves and the gravitational force changes when the planets are added and removed and the zooms all. They look great, right? They're a treat. But watching the behind the scenes and watching them build this sequ- this set uh, is when you see just the the real sort of like artistry of manufacturing the look of this thing because the cg is only used when there's a move right when either the the crane moves and so we have to have a perspective shift uh, on the characters they'll use cg and the map is cg or when something in the interface moves when we zoom in on a planet for example but they actually printed the star maps the full like three-story star maps uh in these giant luminescent sheets these one piece luminescent sheets for each of the major frames and i've got to tell you that is amazing printing tech like it's beautiful it looks it's great i mean i i don't know is it is it that i'm 
nostalgic at this point. That <laughs> well, uh, here's the thing that I think for uh, for people watching this, I don't think they're going to realize that. I think that, uh, and I think to a certain extent, that's what you want out of your effects to make it so seamless that you don't even realize where the effect begins and ends. And when they have those those uh, printed versions of the map up. And then they cut to the stuff that's moving. It's like I would never have known. I I always thought it actually was always just uh, you know graphically done later yeah. after the fact. And to learn that they actually printed, it, I'm like that's really impressive. I mean they did they did a really nice job of making it very clean and seamless. Absolutely, it just it, it's one of those mind blowing things. But so you get past all the veneer here, and and what we actually have is a. a one-on-one sequence with Patrick Stewart and Brent Spiner and their relationship, the relationship between Picard and Data uh, is a, a particularly special one in, in the show. Data. You all right? No, sir. I am finding it difficult to concentrate. I believe I am overwhelmed with feelings of remorse and Regret concerning my actions on the observatory. What do you mean? I wanted to save Jordy. But I experienced something I did not expect. Fear. I was afraid. According to our current information, the destruction of the Amargosa stars had the following effects in this sector. Gamma emissions have increased by 0.05%. The starship Bozeman was forced to make a course correction. Ambient magnetic fields... Wait. The Bozeman. Why would it make a course correction? The destruction of the Amargosa star has altered the gravitational forces throughout this sector. As a result, any ship passing through this region would have to make a minor course correction. A minor course correction. Where's the ribbon now? This is its current position. Can you project its course? Captain. I cannot continue with this investigation. I wish to be deactivated until Dr. Crusher can remove the emotion chip. Are you having some kind of malfunction? No, sir. I simply do not have the ability to control these emotions. I have nothing but sympathy for what you are feeling. But right now, I need you to... Sir, I no longer want these emotions. Deactivating me is the only viable solution. Part of having feelings is learning to integrate them into your life, Data. Learning to live with them. them, No matter what the circumstances, you will not be deactivated. You're an officer on board this ship, and I require you to perform your duty. That is an order, Commander. Their narrative arc over seven seasons is one where we we really get to see uh, him go from not quite being warmed to the idea of the android uh, to having Data be one of his closest confidants and and most trusted advisors and and greatest friends. And so 
this sequence actually is one where we get to to see uh, it's like a pinnacle of their narrative arc without any of the the earned backstory again uh you know when he when Picard turns around and says you are an officer and you're going to handle it part of having emotions is you know being able to live with it it's a really special moment but i think only again uh if you if you had the backstory I will say, watching this though, I was I, I was so impressed with uh, the amount of patience that Picard has in this particular situation. I mean, he's in this situation where he's trying to get this information, and as Soren points out, time after time, <laughs> by saying time in this film, <laughs> time is a is a critical factor in this film. But Picard, you know, Data has these moments where he's like, I, I can't focus right now. And Picard is such a good listener. I was like, this is really impressive for this captain to take a moment, just a small beat out of this uh, out of this situation that he's in, to focus on his crewman and to uh, to try to figure out what is going on with him, and give him that time before uh, finally, you know, when when Data finally is just like, I can't, you have to deactivate me, and when he gives him that moment, and and it's just like a. A, a very firm directive. You are commander on the ship, and you will do your duty right now. And and to, just watching Data like really snap to attention in that moment, I was like, this was a really impressive moment between these two characters. I, I really respected what they actually did in this. I do too. The writers, the directors, the actors, everything was really impressive. No, I, I absolutely agree. And and also, you know, it's coming to it, knowing all of that backstory makes that even more special. I would say I, I really look forward to uh, talking about kind of a similarly modeled scene in terms of Patrick Stewart's performance next week uh, in his, um, you know, his confrontation with Alfred Woodard. Uh, there, it's It has a, a similar arc, if not a, a, a similar intensity. Uh, and and um, I, I really love it. And I think it's a, it's a testament to his craft as an actor, not just as, a, you know, a, a guy playing the captain of this particular starship. He is enormously talented, uh, as is Brent Spiner. I've always enjoyed watching uh, watching these two on screen uh, individually, but watching them together in these little moments, I think, are particularly special in, in what is otherwise a very frustrating slog. To that end, so we've talked about that great moment of this scene. They shift as soon as as soon as Picard gets Data back on track. It really shifts to the detective yeah. work. Right now, we get into exposition. We get into figuring out everything going on with this uh, this nexus. Enhance Grid Nine A. Where was the Amagosa Star? Now you said that when the Amagosa Star was destroyed. It affected the gravitational forces in this sector. Now, did the computer take that into account when it projected the course of the ribbon? No, sir. I will make the appropriate adjustments. That's what Saran's doing. He's changing the course of the ribbon. But why? Why would, why would he try to change its path? Why doesn't he just fly into it with a ship? Our records show that every ship which has approached the ribbon has either been destroyed or severely damaged. can't get to the ribbon so he's trying to make the ribbon come to him now we have some incredible visuals to kind of move us through that but story-wise does the exposition become kind of a slog to get through like try as they try to piece this together or because of the actors is it is it written well does it end up being a, a scene that actually 
has more going for it than just straight up boring exposition. Well, I don't, I, I don't think so. I, I find watching this scene, it reads very much as two scenes, right? I mean, the, the, the pivot, the direction change, uh, is, is really fast. Now, I, I can essentially let go of that because data is a computer, and there is something in, in the back of my mind that says, okay. I know he is probably capable as a character, that's an earned behavior, that he's capable of saying, oh, okay, I'm going to go ahead and change my behavior right now because I'm a computer and I can do that, even though it's hard and uh, my fans are probably spinning up. (laughs) That would be so funny. (laughs) They should. (laughs) I want to recut this whole movie, but this time, (laughs) anytime it gets hard for Brett Spiner, I'm going to introduce like... 1992 circa 1992 era PC fans. <laughs> You're not laughing hard enough, Andy. This is gold. This is no, gold. It's, it's actually really... What would be even better is if it was on the back of his head and it blew his hair up. And so his hair kind of stuck out of the back every time his fans spun off. <laughs> or in his chest and his shirt just kind of billows. <laughs> Puffs. He kind of he, his whole outfit kind of puffs up like those those superhero Halloween costumes. <laughs> oh, God. this is it, it, oh, we dear. should have been in charge of this movie. I should say as a who, do, who needs more in Braga when you're writing Nelson. <laughs> I, I should say uh, as we, this is an auspicious day because as we're recording this, uh, the Orville uh, has gone. This is the um, uh, essentially a spiritual uh, and comedic successor. Apparently, I've not watched it yet. Uh, but it is on the television, mm. and you should see it. You should check it out and see, before next week and see if you uh, see if you like it. Brent Spiner uh, as Data. I don't even remember. I got. So, I was so happy about the fans. I don't remember what my point was. What were we talking about? <laughs> the exposition. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, no, it's a pivot, and it happens so fast. He just sits down, and now we're at the computer again. Uh, and I do. I'm. Yeah. I'm always a fan of of the detective work. I think it's great. But I, in the context of this shift of making the shift and not changing uh, not changing the visual context not changing locations not it, it uh, for me it i'm i'm still sort of verklempt about the the dramatic moment that happened so quickly before it it's tough for me to shake it yeah, it's a it's a frustrating shift within the scene. I, I think that they handle the exposition fine. It, it actually doesn't bug me, and I think it's helped by the the visuals. Like I said earlier, I mean, it's got just amazing visuals as they kind of puzzle yeah. through this thing. Certainly, I like their detective work better than I liked Spock's detective work that we had seen in in four and six when he just figures something out so quickly. This worked a lot better for me. Uh, but that being said, I feel like it could have used um, a little more time with that that first bit. But um, well, and you know, maybe that's my problem with it because we I I can't underscore this enough. That exposition is incredibly important, right? Oh, yeah. Imagine the nonsense of this movie if if you really don't get it, right? If you miss that, if you miss what he's trying to do, the rest of the movie falls completely apart. I'm not saying it doesn't anyway, but it is. Uh, it, it's a hugely important sequence, and and I think you're right. I, my problem is just the context of the of the thing, and and so here, thought experiment. You know how I love thought experiments. What if they put the build uh, to uh, uh, data's breakdown? at the end of the sequence. So they let us get through the the detective stuff and he starts freaking out at the end of the sequence after we know what's going on. And then he says, get back to work. 
I, I can't recall. As I recall, like, we come out of this sequence and we come back into the Klingons and Soren, I think. Um, I know we're kind of at this point of the film cutting back and forth between the Klingons with Soren and they've kidnapped Jordy, and uh, then this element as they're trying to figure out what to do and where to go. I think that um, it might have felt a little weird kind of shifting from, because once you get the plot, like you've got the music, Dennis McCarthy's score starts building as the detective work is figured out. And and we kind of like all of a sudden now we're leading into the plot and it's kind of all of a sudden pushing us forward. I feel like if all of a sudden we went into Data having kind of this emotional breakdown, I think it would have (laughs) almost felt like more of a break than it already already because. This is just imagine. Just close your eyes and imagine. I this what happens is obviously Kurt, or, uh, Picard storms out and he says, "Set course for the Viridian system." And uh, now maximum I want you to warp. imagine <laughs> maximum warp, maximum theoretical warp. Fly the ship apart then, uh, and and they just leave Data alone, standing on the tongue of the Surround O map room with a fake tear in his eye and a fan in his hair. <laughs> alone <laughs> oh wow god we could just we could have owned this saga <laughs> it would have been it would have been great man uh great. production design obviously is beautiful i i have to uh i have to say michael westmore did the makeup there's there are some really fun uh creature makeup there's some really fun creature makeup in here upgrade to data's makeup he has new eyes uh and better skin um and uh, there are a lot of sort of surrounding characters that have uh fun faces i didn't find the the uh, the makeup overall uh, especially on the Klingons, as interesting as I did in the uh, uh, the Klingons in uh, the Undiscovered Country, but obviously it was much more of a Klingon movie, and so I, I certainly understand that. I feel like Worf. Um, I, I've always felt like Worf's Worf's makeup in the Undiscovered Country, Michael Dorn's makeup in the Undiscovered Country, was better generally than all of the run of the TV show of Worf, uh, and I think it gets better in uh, in Deep Space Nine. Oh, interesting. Even better than the films? Yeah, well, and I, I don't want to comment because I, I wasn't looking at it that closely, but First Contact, I, I'm curious. Uh, yeah. Curious how I feel about it in First Contact. So This one, um, this is just a random aside, uh, not a part of our deep scene dive, other than the scene that, that preceded it. We have Soren, like, I guess he's, he's, he's taken off Jordy's visor and he's implanting like a little, uh, you know, uh, something in it so they can see what he is seeing basically but did you notice that jordy is like naked <laughs> and yeah. i'm like what i'm like why does soren have to strip jordy down to take off his visor what is he doing it, and it put really that kind of, big like weird leather like collar around his neck uh, and there's more going on with soren i think than uh, we yeah. realized no actually i learned that there was actually a deleted scene where he actually tortures Jordy for information first and he actually stops his heart and then brings him back to life um, as a form of torture. I'm like, well, that's pretty brutal. And I kind of would have thought that that would have been a better moment to have in the film than, <laughs> than some of the other ones. But you know, it is what it is. That I agree with you. I would have liked to have seen that uh, sequence. I Did you know, of course, uh, that visor is, is an acronym? But what? No. Yeah. It is a visual instrument and sensory organ replacement. Wow. Yeah. So what about those tennis hats that have the little visors on them? Does that does that count? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, no, that doesn't count. This it's only oh. this visor. Oh, oh, wow. But, but oh, it is, I, it's, it's a specific it Jordy visor. It's well, I mean, it's the it's the visor that Jordy wears, not tennis visors. <laughs> it, it ironically, tennis is an acronym. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what it stands for. Uh, uh, how about uh, music? Well, Dennis McCarthy. Um, I, I his music in the scene, I think, is effective as far as kind of helping build the the uh, kind of the the plot tension as they figure out exactly what Soren's doing. Um, overall, for the whole film, I, I mean, Dennis McCarthy was brought onto this just like uh, the director because they had been uh, part of the TV series and they had done effective work on the TV series. I think Dennis McCarthy's music. Um, is is very fine here. It's serviceable. It does the job. The problem I have with it is it doesn't it, like nothing sticks for me. It feels very like I, I like his like choral themes that he has for the for the Nexus and everything. He does a little bit of integrating some of the the old themes. Not enough, if you ask me. Um, but still, it's like in the end, I'm like it. It ends up feeling forgettable, just like the film. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it all sort of at this point, it all kind of blends into the overall sort of musical arc of, of the series. And uh, I don't, I don't have anything beyond the the main Star Trek theme that sticks in my head uh, yeah. out of this one. Nope. Um, anything else uh, on the the scene in particular that you want to call out? The only other thing, just talking about exposition and the sound um, specifically, there is a moment early on in the film when the cameras, uh, you know, I think right at the scene starts, we're looking at the maps and then it kind of the cranes up to the actors. And I've got to say, there is some there's some rough sound editing with with Picard and his exposition as he's talking with Data, trying to figure some of the stuff out. Um, and it looks like it looks like he's. It doesn't look like they changed any of the words or anything with what he's saying because it's still pretty wide as we're coming in on him. But um, I, I just really struggled with some of the ADR as far as kind of when they had him re-record some of his lines. I just I didn't think they did a great job there. I, like I could hear the change in his audio. I could hear the edits happening. Uh, the, I, we should say uh, John Alonso is a cinematographer. You know he's got some credits. He's got some credits. I, he does. This film is beautiful. I mean, there are stunning shots throughout the film that really uh, just uh, made me happy to be watching his work in the world of Star Trek. Because, I mean, there's just some stunning visuals. John Alonzo, I mean, it's just Chinatown. I mean, look at that film. Uh, I, I think that he, he did some really beautiful work uh, throughout. Um, and then there's the Meteor Man. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. No, I, I, he he's done some stuff that you could say is questionable, but he has some some solid films under his belt. Well, and that's why I call that out because this is this is a sequence that I think is interesting, and I think being able to play with this giant crane uh, and and you know tell this sequence this sequence in this space visually, I think it works. I think it really it it works very well. The other thing I would add, this is a. Uh, this is an enterprise that plays much more with lights. Uh, you know, we've it, it's not all bright. It's there are some wonderfully dark sequences, uh, not as dark as we get in in First Contact, but you can feel it sort of moving in that direction, and and it makes it much more interesting to watch. I think seeing more of the sort of gobo uh, patterns of of like solar flare and solar light coming in and casting fun shadows uh, on the walls. I I really enjoy that piece of it. Well, and and the the scene when um, 
Picard is looking at his family photo album and and um uh, Troy comes in. Troy comes in. Yeah. The lighting is just I mean it's it's haunting. It 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 ties into the emotions the characters are feeling. I mean that really struck me. I'm like that the lighting of that almost brought out more emotion to me than than the scene did because I felt yeah. I felt it was a little a little much, but I, I really just thought that it just Alonzo did an amazing job with what uh, he what what the story was trying to tell there. Other cast and crew to call out. Yeah, uh, we see Vasquez uh, uh, from <laughs> from Aliens. Is it sad that that's like become more of her name? Uh, this is Jeanette Goldstein than uh, than her name itself. <laughs> I was just I just refer to her as Vasquez yeah. every time I see her. I mean, I don't know what that says about me. But and of course, <laughs> of course, you know how you know how um, uh, uh, Captain uh, Harriman got his job. Uh, well, how? <laughs> How is that? They kept calling him. They kept calling him. They kept calling him until he came over. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. That's right. They kept, That's what Alan, you know, Alan Ruck. Uh, I know. I know. Funny, you, right? That was you, good. You, you did a little Ferris Bueller joke there, Pete. <laughs> Oh, I, you this know, is I what actually, you get when we record the show earlier, Andy. This is like peak Pete. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I will say, I loved the the Enterprise B. I, I we don't get to see it very much, but I was like, I really liked this ship. I like it. I actually do. I Short-lived. like it much more than the Enterprise uh, D. But it's all okay because we get the Enterprise E coming soon we do get the e coming mm-hmm. soon yes we do uh tim russ also we, we have to i have to call out tim russ uh, in addition uh you know, tim russ is fun to see because he is in uh, he is uh, in voyager um he plays our vulcan uh in voyager and we also have um uh, oh i lost his name neil what's his name is that are you talking about glenn morshower no Glenn Morshauer is a guy who I always recognize every time he's in something. He's just one of those faces that I'm like, hey, it's that guy. And for me, he, it's uh, it's his role. I think it's in 24 that I always uh, reference because he was my favorite of the uh, FBI friends in 24. Uh, no, I'm not. It's not who I'm talking about. Huh. I liked your story, but mine's better, except for maybe <laughs> it's not the right, not even the right guy. Michael Mack? No, I'm thinking of Neil McDonough. Wasn't Neil McDonough sitting in the? Oh yeah, no, because he was in First Contact. He plays Lieutenant Hawk. Oh yeah, you're you're yeah. way off. You're I'm a way whole movie off. off. All right, now let's go back to your guy. What's his name? Glenn Glenn Morshauer. I want to see his face because I want to see if he's the guy that oh, I also gonna, have that. He's he's totally one of those guys. Oh yeah, <laughs> totally. You recognize yes. him from Twenty Four? He's oh, that guy 24. from Twenty Four. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's that's what I always Aaron think Pierce. About yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. And he's been in lots of stuff, but that's that's as soon as I see him and everything, he, he's always like, "Oh, the guy from Twenty Four. <laughs> you can't do that to a man with a fire hose, Jack. <laughs> that's my Glenn Moore shower. How'd I do? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, he's not one of those actors that uh, that is often uh, uh, imitated in that in that way. So I think he'd be happy to go. Wow. I'm- Somebody actually instead of instead of doing the old Christopher Walken, they did the old Glenn Morshower. The old Glenn Morshower. I'm cornering the market <laughs> for Glenn Morshower impersonations. Um, <laughs> one guy from 24. Yes. Uh, what else do we have? Please move us on. That's uh, that's it as far as those guys. But we, I, I did want to say the stories about their shoot out in the uh, the desert of um, of uh, Nevada, the Valley of Fire. 
um, which I thought was a fine fitting location for for the end. I really kind of enjoyed kind of what they did with that particular location. But the stories that they went through um, to film there, um, they had to they 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 could not affect the the uh, territory of the desert tortoise that that made its habitat there. And um, so they they found a way to work it out. They had to like either helicopter stuff into this set that they built way up on top of the mountain. Every single actor and crew member had to like hike up to it. I love hearing stories like that where they actually like hike it all in. They hike the cameras in. They hike the lights in. Everything was hiked in all to protect this this ground tortoise. And nobody ever saw a tortoise while they were filming. I thought that was pretty funny. It's all about it's all it's turtles all the way down. Andy. Desert tortoise, man. Tortoises. It's a tortoise. It's not a turtle. Yeah. It's, well. Get it straight. Get it straight, man. You wanted to, you, you, you were interested in the history of the holodeck. Aren't you? Yeah, but considering it's the holodeck that made me so frustrated in this movie that it's it's sort of hard for me to talk about. Yeah, no, I hear you. You know, I, I did ask myself, though, and going back to our deep scene dive, as I, was, as I was looking at the deep scene dive, I'm like, couldn't they just walk into the holodeck anytime they want and say, show us show us the star map and like... Be standing in it. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it essentially the same thing? Yeah. I, I also, I mean, I have trouble with the holodeck because... I, it feels like they should, the floor should be more treadmilly. Yeah, right. Because otherwise they walk into walls all the time. Why don't they walk into walls? I have a real problem yeah. with that. Um, or falling they, into water and getting wet. You know, there is a there's much more exploration of the holodeck in Voyager, where you know because we have a holographic doctor and uh, the holographic doctor has a, eventually gets a mobile holographic emitter that he wears on his holographic body mm. and uh and then they install holographic emitters in all the you know corridors and it's it becomes a whole holographic subplot i found the origin really interesting that it actually came from the animated series which was done after like a few years like five years or so after the original uh, three seasons of star trek the original series aired um, they did that animated series and that's where it actually came from i thought that was really interesting for some reason in my head they had it in the original series, but I think that it has to be completely in my head because it obviously yeah. didn't come from that. But I thought that was a really interesting little tidbit I didn't know about. That is really interesting. I, narratively, like in the timeline, uh, they actually discover holographic technology in Enterprise, obviously prequel, and they they run into another alien uh, life form that has on their ships holographic or holodecks, and they take it and so that's i didn't know it was i didn't know they even talked about the um, holodeck in the in the animated series that's that is total news to me yeah so the cerulean's uh have their hollow chambers uh, and they're not hollow holla they're holla 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 chambers <laughs> holla <laughs> yeah um oh. anyway yeah anyway <laughs> how to do an award season andrew uh, it wasn't a big award uh, film, if uh, really? you can be surprised at all by that. <laughs> um, but like I mentioned last week, it still was nominated for Best Sci-Fi Film at the Saturn Awards. The uh, you know, as we learned last week with some of the the nominees that were up against, was it last week or the week before the some of the things that they're up against. It's like, well, I kind of am not surprised that it ended up. Um, getting nominated and maybe winning. In this case, it didn't win. It lost to Stargate. But if you look at some of the other films that it was nominated against, as far as um, the best sci-fi films of the year, 
It includes um, Body Snatchers, which I actually like most of the Body Snatcher films. No Escape, which I don't remember No Escape at all. Um, do you remember No Escape? No. No what Escape. Is no Escape? Uh, let's see. Ray Liotta, Lance Henriksen, uh, a soldier convicted for murdering his commanding officer is dumped and left to die on a prison island inhabited by two camps of convicts. Uh, wow. Now I vaguely do remember it, but I never thought of classifying it as a sci-fi. So anyway, apparently it is. Uh, the Puppet Masters, Street Fighter, and Time Cop. So Well, uh, Time Cop. I, I mean, come on. I actually, yeah, Time Cop I like. But Stargate, I'm not surprised that Stargate ended up winning. It certainly spawned its own universe. Yes. But then, oh, and then Whoopi Goldberg was nominated uh, also for Best Supporting Actress, which surprised me. She must me have it, been peeved. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> don't, 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 I didn't ask for my name to be on the credits even. <laughs> uh, uh, she lost to Mia Sarah, who was in Time Cop. And I didn't rem- even remember that Mia Sarah was in Time Cop. Um, and then, of, of course, over at the Razzies, uh, William Shatner was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor, but he did lose to O.J. Simpson for Naked Gun 33 and a third, the final insult. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That is an auspicious loss. <laughs> How did it do in the, aye, the, aye. Uh, when it comes to the numbers? Did it make any money? Well, this big crossover between, you know, we didn't even really talk about uh, Kirk's death and, and if that was a you know good thing in this. Maybe it's better we don't. But uh, anyway, this big crossover between the original cast and the next gen cast got the biggest budget thus far of any of the films since the motion picture. Um, still didn't top it, but it had a $38 million budget. Adjusted in today's dollars, that comes to about $61.5 million, which actually puts it in third place for budgets, also behind Star Trek V. The movie was the big November holiday film, opening on November 18th, 1994, opposite the Miracle on 34th Street remake, the U.S. release of The Professional, which we've talked about on the show, and the animated film The Swan Princess. It opened at number one in the box office, but quickly dropped to number two a week later when Disclosure opened. I remember enjoying that one quite a bit. And then it dropped out of the top 10 after just five weeks. While fans were missing the series after its seven successful seasons on TV, it clearly wasn't popular enough to draw in lots of other people. The movie did go on to make $75.7 million domestically and $44.3 million internationally, giving it a grand total gross in today's dollars of $194.4 million. This gives it an adjusted profit per finish minute of $1.1 million, just ahead disappointingly, I guess it's fair to say, of Star Trek VI. Uh, but it was enough oh of a God. success. I know. It was enough of a success to give Next Generation cast another shot two years later. I am flabbergasted. Yeah. Gobsmacked. I know. I know. Even in total gross, it did better than Star Trek VI. Uh, this was, I, I, in terms of closing remarks, I, I, don't, I, I don't need to belabor the point. This is not my favorite Star Trek movie. I was I it, I really was struck rewatching this because I I don't think I had seen this in in very long time. Um, it struck me at how similar I uh, um, or or the similarities I should say that I saw with this in Star Trek Five, um, but it just Star Trek Five I found had so much more going for it than this one did. This one really just left me disappointed with the uh, very generic feel it had, a generic to subpar feel that it had throughout. I, I agree, and it's, it is so sad that it comes with such 
uh, I think, great raw material and great pedigree. And I think it could have been a really fun way to hand off. I, I didn't. I don't know if I said this out loud. I just don't think they needed the the mashup. I think we could have just said goodbye. Uh, after a great Star Trek VI and done a new series. I don't, I think that was wasted space. Uh, I don't think we needed the Klingons. They did not do service to Klingons after a great Star Trek VI and a great way to sort of do honor to the Klingons, making that a real Klingon movie. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think, so I just think it was just left and right. I, I, f- I feel bad for him trying to shoehorn a lot of, uh, a, a lot of different sort of story elements into this thing, but it, it just doesn't work. Um, and with that, Andy, I think we probably should go ahead and rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, or just swipe over in your show notes, uh, on your podcast uh, app there, and you'll see a link to flickchart. If you tap it, it'll take you right over to this movie where you can rank it just like we're going to do that and see, uh, if it comes up against, uh, for example, a wrath of the Titans, what would you do? Generations <laughs> or wrath of the, I don't know. Andy, what's our first one? Well, let's find out. Star Trek Generations or Hot Fuzz? I think that's an easy one. Well, that's going to be Hot Fuzz, yeah. Star Trek Generations or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Definitely Baron Munchausen. Baron Munchausen, yeah. Star Trek Generations or Gone with the Wind? I would say Gone with the Wind. Boy, this is this puts me in a hard spot. <laughs> I can't believe it, but I'm going to say Star Trek Generations. I can't and believe you're going to say it either. I am stunned I have to actually defend it. I am too. Here, here we go. All right. One, One two, two, three, papers. Okay. Thank the heavens. I, I did my bit for King and Country, Andy. Star Trek Generations or Marty. I'm going to even say Marty on this one, Pete. God, Marty's so bad. It's not. It it's so, just slow. It's it slow. It was boring. At least this one made me mad, and I was so I stayed engaged. <laughs> engaged. I am going to. I'm going to say uh, Star Trek. All right. Well, let's do Twice it. Twice you're making me do this. Okay. One, One two, two, three. Rock. Paper. Rock. Rock. Paper. <laughs> <laughs> See now that worked exactly as it should. <laughs> All right. Uh, Star Trek Generations or the Last Boy Scout. Uh, here I actually will pick. Uh, Star Trek Generations. I will too. Star Trek Generations or Pritzy's Honor? I'm going to go with Pritzy's Honor. Pritzy's Honor. Star Trek Generations or your favorite film about blind people, Blindness. <laughs> oh, you know, B- Star Trek Generations. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with Blindness on this one. Oh, man. <laughs> Andy. Sorry. I know. I'm really kind of right. pushing you, aren't I? Here we go. All right. One, two, two three. three. Rock. Scissors. Crush you. That is there as you. it should be. I, I don't even mind. <laughs> Good. Star Trek Generations or Coming to America. I had so many more problems with that one uh, this time. I'm going to say Star Trek Generations. Yeah, Star Trek Generations. Wow. But that puts it at 303 out of 316. That's pretty low. Makes me wonder where some of these other uh, <laughs> Star Trek The Next Generation films are going to end up if this one is at 303. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that other there are other? Let's just say as a as, as a, a, a prediction, other Star Trek Next Generation cast films you think are worse than this one? Yes. Are you really? This is this is not what I think is one of the worst Star Trek <gasps> films. Absolutely not. I am shocked, sir. Shocked. <laughs> I say. 
Well, it's going to leave a good mystery for people to listen to future episodes. Andy, I didn't know you hated First Contact that much. <laughs> oh, look at you. Oh, well, little table turning going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's, uh, what, what does that do for you uh, over on Letterbox? Letterbox.com slash the next reel. You know, I didn't hate this. Um, I, I was certainly bothered by a lot of elements, but I, I was just bored a lot by it. I had, so I had a hard time ranking it with with what that meant. And I think in context of the script and the frustrations I have with the script, I think I'm at one and a half with this one. I am at one and a half. And it's watching it this time, actually, it, it fell a half star. Uh, I've It's been at two stars for a long time. And it's been at 614 uh, on my... Um, on my uh, flick chart rating and and that I just re-ranked it and it actually ended up at right around the same same spot so uh, I guess you know I got a lot of movies down in below the 600s that are <laughs> that that I don't like all that much but but definitely on letterbox it's a it's a um, it's a one and a half star and I'm not I, I'm not giving it no no I am good I'm gonna give it a like because it's Star Trek yeah, this one, I, that's where I'm a little torn because I feel like there are some elements that I did enjoy. And any chance to see Captain Kirk, um, I'm always thrilled with, even if I was frustrated with them cooking eggs and, and some of the stuff that they do in the Nexus, I still enjoyed seeing Captain Kirk, um, you know, duking it out with Soren up on the rocks. And uh, and I, as as frustrated as I was that the the score didn't hit just really sing to me when when Kirk dies, I thought he had a pretty nice death scene. I liked that. There are elements that I do like here, and so I feel like I have to give it a like. Yeah, I think you have to give it a like. I was torn, but I, I don't I don't need to make a statement. This isn't political. <laughs> uh, I I will say that the bridge. Uh, the mechanics of the bridge, you know, the bridge is uh, on the Enterprise uh, D is all gimbaled. So the bridge was actually moving and tossing people around. And, and uh, according to Jonathan Frakes, it had there were actually ejector seats. Certain seats had like an ejector mechanism in it. And so I am actually I'm going to credit or, or um, uh, this like this heart on Letterboxd to the actor who was catapulted <laughs> from the back of the uh, back of the bridge in slow motion over that other guy who took a knee to the head and down onto the lower level. I think that's uh, well, that's and what he this lands on the captain's chair. On like, the captain's totally. chair, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was that a good was quite, good fall. Yeah. That was quite a feat. Uh, so, there you go. That's All it, right. Andy. Where do we go? Where do we go from here? I could not <laughs> tell you. Well, we're going to be uh, continuing. Like I said, two years later, they were back at it with uh, now Jonathan Frakes at the helm. Everybody does get a turn after all. And uh, we're going to be looking at Star Trek First Contact. This is uh, an interesting one because it really ties in heavily to the show and makes me wonder how people who weren't invested in Star Trek already, uh, what they were feeling it was bringing to the table for them. So a little Borg action, though, next week. Mm, Everybody loves some Borg. (laughs) And uh, for Patreon subscribers, thank you, Patreon subscribers. Uh, We've got the Saturday matinee coming up for Patreon subscribers. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the next reel. And on that show, we have the list. Andy, do you know what we're going to talk about on the list uh, this week? I think we're going to be doing time travel, um, some of our uh, our favorite moments in time travel. But specifically, we're looking for moments in time travel that have those absurd qualities where you have to go back in time 
to like a very specific moment to fix something instead of going back, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, two days ahead of something or whatever. Just this kind of specific uh, time travel moments of silliness. All right. So anytime you go back in time to see William Shatner on a horse, only those movies. (laughs) (laughs) Only those ones. Okay. There had to be rules. I'll do it. I'll see what I can do. There always are. All right. That's it. Uh, I, this was a good conversation, Andy. I have to tell you, though, I'm really glad that I'm finished watching the movie because you know when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. They're so generous. Uh, <laughs> there, I have a, uh, I have a three star, because the five stars, or the one stars, I should say, the one stars, they, they didn't deliver. They actually didn't deliver as well as I wanted them to. And the the sad part about that is, it's mostly because there aren't very many of them. Well, this goes to my question I had earlier. You know, are uh. there TNG Star Trek fans? Here they are. They're all on Amazon. They're all Amazon reviewers. Um, So I take it, would you like to to start? I went high. I went with a five-star by Kevin Teeple, who says, This is my favorite Star Trek movie with its cool action, interesting message, and data being silly. Despite (laughs) making physicists cry, the speed of light is not infinite. I believe it is the best movie of all the movies set in the Star Trek universe. Seeing it on Blu-ray on a big flat screen TV was really fun. Your performance of that review was exceptional. (laughs) Thank you. It was nuanced. There were subtle tone changes. Data being funny, I could listen to you say that over and over again. <laughs> I'll expect a, uh, a review on Life Amazon. Of, of I am going to review. review your performance on Amazon. Uh, mine is a three-star, not an easy transition from the original cast to the new cast. Not an easy transition from the original <laughs> cast to the new cast. It felt like a really well-made episode of Next Generation. It's a good movie, but not spectacular. And I think most of that comes from the fact that I was really not ready to say goodbye to you-know-who when you-know-what happens. Ooh. Huh? I, I Spot? <laughs> spot. <laughs> Wait, Spot uh, didn't die. That's right. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. 
After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.